at SAFM Radio and at Mesh Constant on SAFM. Okay, now we are going to a story that our team have been hunting down for the last couple of weeks. Not an easy story to follow through on because the person we had to speak to was in fact in Australia, so it meant uh, doing interviews at strange hours. But in the last couple of weeks, a live parasitic worm was found inside the brain of a 64-year-old Australian woman. It's the very first time an infection of this nature or the discovery of this nature has happened where a live parasitic worm was found in this woman's brain. The discovery was made by doctors and researchers at the Australian National University. And uh, I managed to speak to Dr. Sanjaya Senana Yake, who was involved in the process. I said to him that it sounded like a kind of horrific comedy act where a woman goes to the doctor and says, I've got a stomach ache. And he says, well, let me look at your brain. And Dr. what comes out? A live worm. This is a remarkable story, Michelle. What happened was that the removal of the worm from the brain was really the end of the story rather than the start of it. It all had started many months earlier when this unfortunate woman came to our hospital with very non-specific symptoms, some diarrhea, tummy pains, some night sweats, and a cough. She also, on her scans, CAT scans, had some abnormalities in her liver and lungs. And we considered a whole lot of possibilities, including parasite infections. We looked for them but couldn't find them. She was treated anyway for common parasitic infections before starting on treatment for another condition. And she improved while on that treatment, but after many months, her GP noticed that she was a bit more forgetful than usual. She was a bit unhappier than usual. And that led to her very clever GP ordering an MRI scan of the brain. And on that was a very obvious abnormality of the front part of the brain on the right-hand side. And that's when our neurosurgeon got involved because we had to biopsy that to find out what it was. So, doctor, I mean, I'm assuming that they saw an abnormality on the brain, but they didn't think dot, dot, dot. (laughs) No, and I guess that's the question we sort of all ask ourselves now. If we look at that MRI with the gift of hindsight or the retrospectoscope, was there a word, was there an obvious worm there? And it's still hard to say that. So really something, but something was clearly abnormal. It needed to be biopsied. Could it have been a cancer, an abscess or some inflammatory tissue? We didn't know. And that's why the neurosurgeon needed to get some of that tissue. But when she went in there, she she noticed something that felt abnormal. And with her forceps, she grabbed it and Suddenly, she was staring at an eight-centimeter live wriggling red worm, something she and no one else in that operating theater was expecting to see. Oh, I, I, I try to imagine what she must have thought and what the people in the operating room must have thought when A, she pulled out a worm, but B, that it was still alive. And I'm, I'm interested in what you think, how, how does that happen? Yes, so the surgeon, Dr. Bandy, Harry Bandy, my colleague, she will tell you that when she 
when she operates on a brain or when a neurosurgeon operates on a brain, you do not expect to find anything alive inside it. And so really, this is for her and for all of us, a once in a career experience. So she was definitely shocked. She was holding onto the worm with the forceps and she just told her assistant, you hang on to this because she uh, was really quite uh, shaken by the discovery. And as you say, the fact that it was alive was even more creepy indeed. So, so how, how could this have happened? I mean, first of all, I suppose one has to say, what kind of a worm was it? And how could it survive in one's brain? I mean, I've seen the image of the worm, and it, how long was it? It was substantial in terms of worms in brains. It was eight centimeters long. Oh, my word. So, so it uh, certainly wasn't, wasn't small. It wasn't one or two centimeters. It was eight centimeters long. And look, the reality is, though, there are parasites, worms, yeah. that can infect the human brain. This is the first time that this particular parasite or worm has been shown to infect a human. So this is the first documented human case of this in the world. But parasites can infect brains. In fact, the most common cause of epilepsy in the world is due to a parasite, due to cysts called uh, neurocystisicosis. So, but it's certainly, that doesn't involve eight centimeter worms. So it's nothing as dramatic as that. So it can happen, and it, it can happen because parasites, when they get into our body, they have an affinity for certain tissues. It may be the lungs, it may be the livers, it may be, uh, may, may be the gastrointestinal system, but they do learn to wander around. And as I mentioned with this lady, it was in her lungs, it was in her liver on the CAT scan. There were spots which in retrospect, in hindsight, we know were multiple larvae or worms going around her body. The interesting thing you've raised about the brain with this worm is that even in animals where this parasite is well documented, it's never been found in the brain before. So this is the first time in a human or animal it's ever been found in a brain. And in all honesty, I think it just got lost and it found its way in there. And if it hadn't been picked up by the surgeon then, it probably would have continued to wander around the brain, causing all sorts of mischief. So, uh, Dr. Sananyaka, I, I suppose, first of all, what kind of a worm was it? It, it apparently lived in pythons or something. And how on earth? That's right. How would that have happened that she, that it's entered her system? Yes, so Michelle, to understand what happened here, it's pro probably good to go back a step and reflect on what normally happens in nature with this roundworm, this parasite called Ophidoscaris robertsi. Now, this is a parasite that lives in snakes. In Australia, it's in carpet pythons, but it's found in other snakes around the world. So that's another important point. This was the first documented case in the world, but because it's found in snakes in other parts of the world, there might be other human cases that might be recognized because of this snake. Well, what happens in the animal world when a snake defecates, the eggs of the parasite are in the python feces, and little mammals or marsupials will forage and eat and accidentally ingest the python feces which have the parasite eggs in them. 
And in those small mammals, the parasite eggs will hatch and then the larvae will develop. So they'll mature inside the mammal. And then another snake will come along, eat the mammal, kill and eat the mammal. And then the more mature stage of the parasite ends up in the snake to complete the life cycle. So that ha all happens in the wild without human beings involved. But what we think happened here is that this lady liked to forage, collect native grasses, which is a very common thing uh, that people do in Australia, this particular native grass called warrigal greens. We believe, we can't prove it, but we believe that the python, that pythons would have defecated around that area. So her hands and the warrigal greens would have gotten contaminated with the python feces and parasite eggs. And that would have led to her inadvertently ingesting the eggs and the parasites developing in her. So, okay, I have two more questions for you. The first one would be, when you told her that she'd had a worm in her brain, which was living, how did she respond after the surgery? Well, it was a, a combination of shock and relief. Now, obviously, you and I aren't the person in whom the were in whose brain the worm was found, but even we feel queasy and horrified thinking about it. So you can actually imagine how it would have been for her. But you also have to remember that this comes on the tail end of being unwell for many months and not having a definitive diagnosis. So this actually helped her get a diagnosis, helped us give her directed treatment and allowed her to move on. So it was a horrifying thing to find, but in some ways it was also a blessing. So my last question would be, um, and, and this is just maybe hypothesis or theory or perhaps nothing of the sort. Do you think that it's possible that we're starting to see these kinds of things happening um, between mammals and humans? I mean, we are also mammal, but between humans and the animal kingdom, because things are shifting and changing so fast with climate change and that kind of thing. I'm thinking about COVID and how they say it could have come from the wet markets and that kind of thing. Oh, look, uh, without a doubt, uh, Michelle, this is, the other reason we wanted to highlight this is that this was a new infection in the world, the humans, but it comes on the back of there being 30 new infections in the last 30 years in humans. And three quarters of those new infections are zoonotic. When we say zoonotic, we mean infections that have come from the animal world yeah. into the human world. And that is no accident that many of these new infections are zoonotic because we've got growing human populations. And as they grow, they expand their living environment and they're encroaching on animal habitats in a way that they haven't before. And this allows increased interaction between not just humans and wild animals, but domestic animals and wild animals, humans and uh, flora that they normally wouldn't be foraging for or interacting with. And this allows the transmission of pathogens or microorganisms, parasites, viruses, bacteria in a way that we haven't seen before. So this is happening now and it's going to continue to happen. You mentioned the issue of climate change. We know that in the last hundred years, there's data showing that in, Af in Africa, the entomology data that showed over 116 years, 
the malarial mosquito has managed to move about 500 kilometers southwards and about 700 meters higher in elevation. And that seems to correlate with climate change. So we're seeing a bigger range of malaria in the last 100 years because of climate change. And vectors like mosquitoes will move to warmer climates as, as the climate does warm up. So increased human population, encroaching on animal habitats, climate change, all of this will see more and more new infections emerge. So that, yes, it was 100 years between the two big pandemics, but it may not be before the next one. And certainly then it means that the, um, what was it, the Netflix or Showmax series, The Last of Us, um, holds uh, a kernel of truth somewhere. Uh, look, I must admit, I haven't seen The Last of Us, Michelle, but <laughs> it, it's about, it sounds like, hmm? uh, yeah, it's about um, how, how humans get infected by a fungi, a fungal infection. So I think um, it, it does certainly raise all sorts of uh, storylines and narratives that uh, we may not have seen in the past. Oh, Don't... look, and I, I think that's very plausible. Yeah. I want to say thank you so much.